It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. Welcome to Money for Lunch. Glad you're here. We're going to kick it off with the quote of the day. No matter what happens in life, be good to people. Being good to people is a wonderful legacy to leave behind. Attributed to Taylor Swift. No matter what happens in life, be good to people. Being good to people is a wonderful legacy to leave behind. Taylor Swift, thank you for that. Uh, All right, we're going to jump into it. Today on the show, I'm being joined by Chris Estergaard. Chris Estergaard is a sought-after speaker, facilitator, researcher, and expert on innovation in legacy organizations, corporate cultures, and exponential organizations. He is co-founder and chief learning and innovation officer at Singularity U Nordic, a collaborative venture with Singularity University in Silicon Valley. Chris Estergaard, welcome to Money for Lunch. Thank you very much for having me. You bet. You bet. All right. So you have a book out. We're going to be talking about transforming legacy organizations, turn your established business into an innovative champion to win the future. What made you write this book? Yeah, so I've been working in the space of innovation for many, many years, and uh, I've been working both with the large established uh, corporations, those that we sometimes call legacy organizations because they have a lot of history, and startups as well. And what, uh, what really struck me increasingly is that uh, we live seemingly in this uh, age of the entrepreneurs and the startups, and we see startups coming out of nowhere, disrupting not just companies but entire industries, it seems. Uh, uh, and, and there's a lot to learn from startups in terms of innovation. But what also struck me is that innovation is, is so very different if you're a large, established organization. And that that's what I wanted to write a book about and what, and what the book focuses on. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at some of these legacy organizations, as you mentioned, you know, uh, I'm thinking Kodak at one point had all of the patents for digital photography and never used it they they wanted to hold on to film and you know and and then what's interesting also uh is blockbuster video blockbuster video at one point was the largest of its kind uh you know four thousand plus stores huge multi-billion dollar company and they even saw innovation coming um uh, with Netflix, and and they even had a chance to do a joint venture with Netflix, and still they could not see it. Uh, they really, I mean, they they did not understand that there was change in the marketplace. They were not, they were so big, as you said, you know, so, so kind of set in their ways that they really didn't want to pivot. I mean, there was this consensus that. You know, we're Kodak or we're Blockbuster. We're, you know, we're, we're too big. Nobody's going to hurt us. And now these companies are gone. 
Yeah, so it's the classic innovator's dilemma, right? They are looking at the, the Netflix, or so they were looking at the digital camera and say, why would we go into this? We have this uh, incredibly lucrative business here going really well for us. And, uh, and, and what they failed to do, in my opinion, is, uh, you know, in many ways, Kodak was an incredibly innovative company. Uh, and what they failed to do, however, was to design properly for innovation, which is what I focus on in, in my book, when it comes uh, to the large established companies. And, and that is simply that they need to innovate in multiple tracks at the same time, where they both innovate for the very current where they just optimize the existing, but they also do what I call augmenting innovations, which is where you constantly upgrade your core. This is where we see all these digital transformation processes in, in large companies now. And then finally, that they do the mutating innovations. And this is where you are very experimental and where you try out the stuff that you don't really know how it works, but you uh, try it out in order to learn and figure out what it might be. And this is the part of innovation where the blockbusters would have been clever to do a collaboration with Netflix to see what it might turn out to be and to see if that might be the future of, of them as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, in your book, you talk about the difficulty that these large legacy companies have when it comes to innovation. Talk about this. Why is it so hard for these big companies who – have money, they have research departments to to be innovative. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, uh, at, at the core of the most large, established, successful companies, they have what you could call a status quo culture. A status quo, uh, we, we all in our brains as human beings have a lot of biases. One of them is called the status quo bias, and that literally means that we would rather not lose than win. Uh, and what that translates into is that, you know, if we are to embark upon something new, something uh, uh, that we don't really know, then it has to be very compelling for us to do so. And if you're large and you're a successful company, well, then you're pretty happy with uh, how everything is going and you have this status quo culture. It's all about optimizing the existing, which is important, but it is, however, not enough. And um, so what you really need to do is transform culture in these organizations. Uh, and uh, one way to do that is to really uh, look at your organizational system. And in the book, I talk about these different immune systems. Um, and so immune systems are just like the body's immune system are protecting the body, but they can also actually be harmful. And that's what we see in large uh, companies happening. Now, there's both an individual immune system, which is like the personal, uh, personal barriers towards change, which is a real thing, but it's actually not the most important thing when it comes to barriers in organizations for innovation. But much more important is what uh, I call the organizational immune system. That is the actual system that people work within. So that is partly your KPIs, you know, your key performance indicators, the things that you are being measured on when you go to work every single day. It's your reward systems. What is it that we actually reward in organizations and, and what we don't reward? It is your legacy IT and all your structures and legal departments, etc., that uh, any innovation sort of needs to go through before we turn it loose and, and create new products or, or units out of it. And it's also investors and shareholders 
that, you know, if you're not Amazon or Netflix that can, you know, live for many years with billion-dollar deficits, um, then they uh, tend to uh, demand returns on a, on a very quick scale. So all of these things are massively important and uh, are barriers towards organizations creating the new and innovating and preparing and designing for the future. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's amazing. In one sense, in one sense, you want to be these big companies. That's the dream of any entrepreneurs to be this big multi-billion dollar company. But on the other sense, you don't want to be so stuck in your biases as you're talking about that you basically disappear off the face of the earth. No, yeah, I, I mean, I like to say when I when I speak to uh, to the large established companies that when it comes to innovation, there really is good news and bad news, and the bad news <laughs> is that innovation is much harder for them than it is for the startup because the systems are very complex. They usually have many products, services, and offerings. But the good news is that no one has a better chance of succeeding with the innovation initiatives than they do because they have all the resources, money, customers, data, infrastructure, the works. So it's much more about mindset and design than it is about all these other things. It really is about how can they design properly for innovation. And if they do that in the right way, well, then they have a much better chance of succeeding, in fact, than the startups that many of them are scared of. Sure. No, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. We're talking with Chris Estergaard. We are talking about his latest book, Transforming Legacy Organizations, Turn Your Established Business into an Innovative Champion to Win the Future. Love the title. Uh, All right. So let me ask you this. In the book, you begin with addressing old questions that organizations need to explore in new ways. In the example that, you know, that they must explore six degrees of competition. Talk about what the six degrees are. Yeah, so um, it's interesting that, you know, with all this technological development that all of us are experiencing and, uh, and we're really seeing this acceleration of opportunity because of developments within artificial intelligence and robotics, sensors, computation, uh, you name it, right? And that means that we really have, as organizations, you have to look much broader, really, uh, than what we had traditionally have had to do in order to understand both the competitive landscape in, in terms of what threats there might be, but also in terms of opportunities. So uh, a way to investigate that is what we call uh, six degrees of competition. And, um, and what that means is simply you take your value offering, whatever it might be, and then you explore what's like the first obvious first degree of competition, but also the second degree and the third degree and all the way out to the sixth degree. And then something interesting starts to happen. So in the book, I use coffee as a simple example of this. So we take 400 grams of ground coffee from Folgers, for instance, just to, to take a, a very well-known brand in, in the U.S. And then you say, now let's explore what the first to the sixth degree of competition are for them. Um, if we really broaden our scopes and also factor in technological developments. And the first degree, obvious degree, is any other type of brand that also sells 400 grams of brown coffee that you can buy in the supermarket. Second degree might be tea, right? If you drink tea, you don't drink coffee. Third degree might be Red Bull. It's cold, it's not warm, but it's loaded with caffeine, so in many ways it provides the same value. 
fourth degree might be Starbucks. If you go to Starbucks, you don't uh, brew your coffee at home. But once you get beyond the third, fourth degree of competition, then something interesting starts to happen. Then you, uh, and if you explore it also from a technological angle, then you start to see opportunities and threats out there that you might not be discussing in your companies. So in the case uh, that I give in the book here is to say, what's the fifth degree of competition for 400 grams of ground coffee? Well, for instance, there's this thing called the Muse, which is a meditation device that you put on your head. And what it mm. does is that it can read your brain waves. And that means that you also have on headphones where you hear sounds. And then depending on your brain activity, the sounds that you hear, they will differ. And the, the more focused you get, the closer you get to theta stage, which is where you get like really focused, which is where you want to go if you need to concentrate and need to innovate, for instance. Then you hear less and less sound. And if you like really hit the sweet spot, then you'll hear birds tweet. And you collect those bird tweets on an app. So it's like gamified meditation in a convenient way. And the interesting thing here is, I mean, what does it have to do with coffee? Well, what might products like the museum, there are other similar devices on the way on the market. What might they do to coffee cup number three, four, five, or six during the day, right? Three o'clock in the afternoon, you're tired, but you know you have to work a couple of extra hours. So will you drink that coffee from Folgers or might you just take your meditation device and use that for seven minutes? Six degree of competition. I suggest, and what about autonomous vehicles? Pretty soon, many of us will live in a world where we will have the opportunity to take an autonomous car to work and no longer need to hold our uh, steering wheel going to work in the morning. So would that mean that we won't drink that extra cup of coffee in the morning to be alert? Perhaps, perhaps not. But a lot of coffee brands, also Starbucks and also actually Red Bull, they sell somewhere between 20 and 40% of their products in gas stations. So what happens when we no longer need gas stations, right? The whole value shifts dramatically. So the question then becomes, of course, do they sit in the boardrooms of the coffee maker or, you know, insert your own value offering in whatever industry you're in and discuss the fifth and sixth degrees of competition, the the meditation devices and the autonomous vehicles? And in most cases, the answer is no, they do not, right? We go to like the third and fourth degree. And then we feel we have a really good understanding of the competitive landscape. But that's dangerous. And that is what might lead to the Kodak and Blockbuster moments, right? Because we feel very secure because we don't look broad enough and we don't look well enough with an understanding of the technological developments that we're seeing. And that poses a lot of threat, but also makes us overlook a lot of opportunity. Yeah, you know what? I I love that idea of looking at the six degrees of competition right there for those who are listening this episode just I don't know just blew your mind is probably worth thousands and tens of thousands if not millions of dollars because how many companies will look at just their next one, maybe two competitors, right? You know, we look at our competition on a, such a superficial level. I sell coffee, so everybody who sells coffee is a competitor. Well, I love the, I like the fact that you went, hey, okay, so, you know, there's, there's my direct competitors who sell coffee, and there's my indirect competitors who sell coffee on the streets, and then there's the, the other versions of caffeine, and then, you know, the autonomous vehicle that would not have even entered into my thought process. So uh, 
this this six degrees of competition is an amazing exercise for people to do right there. That to me is a great uh, what do you call it value bomb uh, for everybody to go out and get the book. I mean that's a fantastic fantastic idea, Chris. I love that. And and again, I want to I want to uh, shout out the book real quick. It's called Transforming Legacy Organizations: Turning Your Established Business into Innovation Champion to Win the Future. I'm going to put a link in the show notes so you guys can get it there if you want. Uh, but anyway, Chris, I love that six degrees. I thought that was very, very powerful. Thank you. So I want to come back and talk a little bit more about the immune system. You talk about this in your book as barriers towards innovation. And, you know, I want you to maybe, I don't know if you can give me an example of how the immune system uh, kind of like, like the example you gave with the six degrees of competition do you have an example of the immune system? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what I find to be uh, very critical is the, the notion of KPIs, key performance indicators, uh, you know, right. how we measure all the goals that we set for each other. And generally speaking, KPIs are a mess. There's a global study out by MIT where they uh, surveyed more than 3,000 global managers, and only 26% of them believe that the KPIs were in fact aligned with strategy. That's just an amazing number to me. And uh, it, anybody who's worked in a you know, mid-sized to large organization, uh, I'm sure has had the, the same type of experience that I have seen in you know, hundreds of companies while researching this. It's the notion that you know, even departments or divisions within uh, organizations sometimes have KPIs that actually go in opposite directions. The classic example is that the IT department is being measured on increasing efficiencies all the time, whereas sales and marketing are being measured on how can they increase customer value by customizing even more. And so this is where we really want to see innovations happening. Uh, but those two things you know, are, uh, are opposites very often because in order for sales and marketing to be able to do that, they need IT to help them do new stuff, but IT is not motivated to help them do new stuff because they're in fact not being measured on it. On the contrary, they are being measured on not innovating in terms of more sales or greater customer value. They're only being measured uh, on innovation at best on creating more efficiency. So that's what in game theory is called a construction problem, right? I mean, they literally cannot work towards the same types of goals goals because they're being measured on two different things. That's a huge, big problem. Yeah. You know, again, that, to me, that what a, what a great idea to take all these other departments that maybe are not, I don't know, profit generators or known for innovation and reward them for bringing in profits or, you know, being innovative or doing something like, you know, maybe saving some money. You know, Google is well known for allowing all of their employees to spend 20% of their time on different experiments and projects and ideas. And so here's a company, and I'd like to get your opinion on this, that is really setting itself up to be to, to win its future, right? It's, it's asking its employees to try different stuff, and, and they're bound, you know, when you have tens of thousands of, of experiments going on, 
you're bound to get five or ten that are going to work. Yeah, I think it's one of the things that Google has done really, really well is that they were, you know, founded uh, with a culture on experimentation and innovation, and they have made, uh, managed to maintain that culture uh, even as they have grown really, really big. And also, would I would characterize them also as as actually being a legacy organization, even though they're only 20 years old. Uh, they have just, you know, uh, grown at, uh, at at this incredible speed. And yes. They uh, actively reward people for innovation, and that's uh, I, I bring it out as an, a case in, in my book as well. Um, that um, th- this is really clever, and there's a lot to learn from here. Um, and and what they do, in fact, is that they have these uh, what I call culture hacks that uh, that they're using that are um, uh, incredible, powerful. Uh, that uh, partly around your KPIs, what are you being measured on, but Partly also, what uh, are you recognizing in others? What are you rewarding in others uh, with other means? And just uh, to give one example, that in, in certain areas of, of Google uh, or Alphabet, they hand out what they call the Courageous Penguin Award. And the Courageous, you know, so uh, the penguins, you know, of course, you've seen them in many movies or, or, or National Geographic films or whatever. You've seen them, you know, they stand on the brink of the ice, right? And they look in the water, and there are hundreds, if not thousands of them. They're all looking into the water and, uh, and waiting for someone to take the first dive. And the problem, of course, is for the first jumper here is that that penguin doesn't know whether it hits water or it hits ice. But one has to be the first one, and then if the first one goes down and it goes well, then everybody else follows, right? So one <laughs> has to be the courageous penguin. And so they took that, and then they uh, turned that into an award. And they give that courageous penguin award to someone who dares to make a jump, even if that person doesn't know whether that person will you know, succeed or not succeed with it. And, and I find that to be really ingenious because what it does is that it rewards you to take chances. It doesn't reward you for the results that you end up with. Right? It's, it's not about whether you become successful or earn a lot of money or anything. It's about actually daring to do it. And that's a hack that is incredibly powerful and says a lot about the type of culture that you're trying to create. Yes, I love that. You know, right there, if our society, if our school system started giving out the Penguin Award to, let's say, junior Mm -hmm. high and high school students and, and, and let's say even college students, how quickly would our universe change? Yeah, I agree. I love that idea, the, the Penguin Award. Man, I just love that. Um, all right. Um, let's see. In your book, um, you talk about, and we've already kind of discussed how important culture is uh, in, in, in playing this role of constant and never-ending innovation. My question is, somebody's listening and saying, yeah, that sounds great, but my company's too big and blah, blah, blah. So how do you, for an older company, a legacy company, how do you go about changing that culture? Because it's easy to do with, a, like you said, a startup, right? They got four or five employees. The, mm-hmm. guy, you know, the CEO can stand up and say, okay, starting today, you know, we're going to start doing this. But, you know, you got – whatever, 5, 10, 20,000 employees, 
how do you start making that change for these bigger companies? Yeah, I mean, it takes a lot of dedication and it's very, very difficult. And ideally, what you do is that you uh, you do it from the top. I mean, having a top management buy-in on it and, and, and then driving it. Because ideally, what you need to do, as I mentioned earlier here, is that you need to change the system. And that's, of course, a very big endeavor. And uh, anybody in the organization doesn't have the power to do that. Now, if you don't have that buy-in from top management and you are not top management yourself, then what you still can do, however, is to map out your area of power, right? So maybe you're head of a department or you run a, a team or whatever it is that you do. And you need to map out what area of power do I actually have. And then what you can consider here is then figure out what kind of culture hacks can I create. And I, in the book, I map out a lot of different culture hacks that uh, all have, like the Courageous Penguin as a culture hack. And they, many, many of them, if not most of them, actually have that incredible benefit that they're free. I mean, it's not really about money and putting in a lot of money into something. It's much more about the mindset and the design of it. Um, so this is where you would consider, I'm running a department, or I'm running this team. Well, why don't I start handing out the Courageous Penguin Award? Or why don't I start working with my team on using uh, additional KPIs where we don't just measure sales, for instance, or how much money we put on the bottom line, but where we are actively also measuring each other on our thought leadership or our commitment to the project or uh, other interesting new types of more qualitative KPIs you can come up with that help you set a direction and a tone and build a certain culture. Uh, and then what you want to aim for here, of course, is to run your own uh, experiments to get some results and show some wins that you can then show other places in the organization and say, hey, look what we've been doing. This actually works out really well. And then use that to start a, uh, a shift in the organization from the bottom up. Gotcha. Yeah. And I think that this Courageous Penguin Award, to me, that should be uh, something to look at not only in our businesses, but in our homes, in our schools, uh, you know, to celebrate the courage just to try. I think uh, we need to focus on a lot more of that. And if we focus more people, if we celebrated more people trying, then more people would actually try. Therefore, we would get a lot more failures, yes, but a lot more successes, and we would see changes in our companies, our homes, everywhere. I, I love this idea. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, the book is Transforming Legacy Organizations, Turn Your Established Business into Innovation Champion to Win the Future. My guest today, Chris Estergaard, thank you so much for stopping by. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Good stuff there from best-selling author Chris Estergaard. And it's it's uh, actually spelled O-E-S-T-E-A. I'm sorry. O-E-S-T-E-R-G-A-A-R-D. And it may not even be an actual O. It might just be uh, – uh, anyway, I'm not going to explain it. Just if you type in Chris Estergaard, you'll find it. If not, 
here on the show notes. I am going to put a link. You can go and get the book there. But, you know, this is the thing that I love about my show. Chris comes on here. Yes, he is promoting his book. And based on the value that he gave, his book could be worth millions of dollars to you and or your company. The idea that uh, – or, or the, yeah, the, the, the idea that he went over the six degrees of competition can be a lifesaver, game-changing strategy for your business. The idea of celebrating the courageous penguin is another multi-million dollar idea. Please, let's share this episode with everyone we know. Let's help as many people as we know win their future, become innovative, become courageous as penguins. As always, my friends, thank you so much for stopping by. Remember, you were created to succeed. Tune in Monday through Friday here on Money for Lunch. And check out our website at moneyforlunch.com.